my brother David and I worked on a book on fatherhood, and, 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 and this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. Um, while we were working on the book, the news was filled with the Jerry Sandusky Penn State University, uh, what would I call it, obscenity. Um, so I'm, David and I are working on a book on fatherhood, and you turn on the television, you listen to the radio, you look at newspapers, you look at the internet, wherever you go, everything is about what? Everything is about a man who has used his manhood as a father, his manhood as a husband, his manhood as a coach, every bit of manhood he has had, he has used to destroy the souls of those who he is supposed to protect, right? Can I get this fixed in your brain? He has been a predator on those that the essence of fatherhood is to protect. Okay? And surrounding him are other men who have done what? Who have used their manhood to do what? To facilitate his predator actions. Okay? Because why? Well, because of their commitment to worship the idols, the idol of the university and its reputation as an academic institution, the idol of Penn State football, the idol of going along to get along, which in postmodernism is almost superior to, to sports. Do, do you understand? And so here we have fathers, and the essence of fatherhood is to give your life and your, for the sake of others, to take responsibility, to protect. There's a reason why men have broad shoulders and women have breasts, right? Can we all just recognize that there's a difference between broad shoulders and breasts? Everywhere else you go, you see breasts, so I can say it, right? And the reason is that men are to use their broad shoulders to hide their wives and the children hanging from their breasts. Do you all understand this? Men's shoulders have a purpose. Biology is destiny. And so when men use their superior physical capacities to wage war, to be predators, and to protect predators, instead of to protect women and their children, we have national news, and it'll keep going on. There will be more revelations, and then there's Syracuse, and then there's, you know, and there's the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Pope just came out with a statement. Did you, did you all see this? That, that people shouldn't be predators against children. I'm so glad the Pope told us this. You know, he's in such a morally superior position to tell us this. And so all this news, the entire world is talking about this. There's nobody who isn't talking about it. If we went out to a coffee shop, what did everybody around us talk about? Fatherhood. Coachhood. 
the academy, covering up. If I went into, and you remember that my, my cousin died, and so I had to become the executor for my other cousin's estate. So I was in Pittsburgh, and I go with this crusty attorney, right? I like him a lot. He's a Pittsburgh attorney, you know? And, and it might have something to do with the fact that his office was filled with smoke, you know? You know? Don, have you ever thought about perfecting your voice? I think I know how you can do it. <laughs> Just start smoking. <laughs> It'll be so much better. <laughs> I just cracked myself up. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I've always noticed. Have you ever noticed what Pittsburgh people talk like? You know, R.C. Sproul and John Gerson. All right, okay, I'll stop. But I mean, the Steelers kind of play like that. You know? All right, okay. Okay. We go down to the, to the county courthouse, downtown Pittsburgh. And as we're there taking care of this probate stuff, what happens is the attorney talks to the clerk. And what do they talk about? They talk about... The attorney for Penn State, who made the decisions how to proceed legally, when this stuff came into view, he was counsel for Penn State. He made the decisions, and what? Now he sits on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And they both laughed. Why did they laugh? You see fatherhood. You see it everywhere. You see the authority, the duty to protect. You see it on the part of a father who adopted children. You see it on the part of a coach. You see it on the part of Joe Pa. What is Joe Pa? Joe Pa is Joe Father. The term of endearment. It's like Abba Father, but it's, it's Western Pennsylvania. It's Joe Pa. And then you see it on the part of the council for the, for the university. You see it on the part of the police. You see it on the part of the district attorney. Every single father in that line does what? You see it even on the part of this hulking six-foot, who knows how tall, dude who was a teaching assistant at, what, 26? Wasn't he 26? And instead of going in there and dealing with it, he goes and tells his dad, and then he go, they go and tell. You, you understand what I'm saying? Everywhere there was a father, and I'm using father in equivalent construction with man. <laughs> okay? Everywhere there's a father, what happens? There's a failure. Right? Okay? Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, this is the news. This is everywhere I go. If I go into the court, if I go to the county clerk, if I go to Starbucks, wherever I go, this is the conversation. This is the news. This is the newspapers. Everywhere I go, this is everything, everything, everything in America. Right? And what is true is that Americans are all one of two categories. They're either people who have neither been abused nor abused anyone. And so this is a huge morality play for them about how you just wouldn't believe what some people are like. Right? 
or they are either abused or abusers, okay? And then they look at this and they say what? I hope I don't get caught. I'm glad, you know, everybody processes their own sins through Jerry Sandusky, or Sandusky, or however, I don't know how you pronounce it. How is it pronounced? Dusky, okay, Jerry Sandusky. So then I go to a worship service in the middle of this. It's right in the thick of it. And I go to a worship service, and it's this wonderful evangelical church where uh, everything about it, there's a tent outside, they welcome you, there's a lot of women that shake your hand and smile at you, you know, eye candy as you, as you go into the, into the place, you know. And then when you get in, there's a huge bunch of uh, carts with Bibles on them. And you can take as many Bibles as you want. There's wonderful donuts and good coffee, all right. And, and you get in, and the sanctuary is a controlled environment. There are no external windows at all. It's all black, but there are good lights, and the residual threshold of decibels is probably under 30, you know? And everything is perfect. And then the preacher gets up, and the preacher preaches on Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's a perfect gospel message. Except only one thing is missing. There's no mention of sin and no mention of judgment. And so what are you left with? Well, you're left with the fact that what? The only judgment Americans believe in is the judgment that's going to happen to Jerry Sandusky through the courts. But God is impotent. I've never heard anybody say anything about Jerry Sandusky facing God. And yet what we know from Scripture is that Jesus said, what? Inasmuch as ye have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. Now you, you say, wait, 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 that's not how Jesus meant that. I say, okay. Anybody that offends, that places a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones, it would be better for him that he had a millstone tied around his neck and he was cast into the sea. Okay? And so a perfect gospel message in the middle of Jerry Sandusky not a mention of sin, not a mention of judgment. And so I'm writing a book on fatherhood, and I don't, I don't think that I'm special because I'm writing a book. I think I'm an idiot to be writing a book. So don't think that that's my pride. I have lots of pride, but not there. <laughs> Trust me. Exercise in futility. Don't worry, we made progress. All right. And I'm thinking, how do I talk about fatherhood today? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just simply talk about how fathers should, um, you know, be servant leaders? You know, and fathers should get up in the morning and fix breakfast for their wives, and fathers should 
always remember to send birthday cards to their children on their birthdays, even after they leave their home. You know, and there are all kinds of moral things I could talk about fathers needing to do. But then I'm thinking, how do you begin to talk about fatherhood today so that people see how terrible the failures of fathers is, right? How do you talk about fatherhood without talking about Noah and David and Solomon and Eli and Samuel? Well, the minute I start thinking about talking about them, I think, well, that's depressing. I mean, nobody's going to buy a book that has Samuel in it and Eli. I mean, how sad that after he was the prophet to Eli, he himself fell into the same sin of not fathering his sons. Did you know that? How many of you knew that? Okay, good, (laughs) because I didn't know it until recently. Okay. And then I think, well, really, if you're going to talk about the failures of fatherhood, it can't simply be the failures of people in the Bible. It has to be the failures today. And it can't simply be the failure of Jerry Sandusky. Because when I talk to people and hear about the failures of their fathers, I have to tell you, that there are infinite varieties of ways that fathers fail, right? Some fail sexually. Some fail with physical beating of their children and their wives, right? And that's different than sexual, right? Some fail by completely betraying their obligation to protect their family, right? It's a very different failure, isn't it? The failure of Jopah is a very different failure from the failure of Jerry Sandusky, right? Everybody with me on this. But who would you choose? Now you say, well, I'd choose Jopah. I say, okay, <laughs> yes. But how, how much better is Jopah? <laughs> you know? Or let me ask you another way. If you could get a pop at him. Would you take it? I would. How many men would take it if you, if you could just punch him? There's a lot of men here that are either monsters or haven't yet had all the male principle removed from them. <laughs> I mean, when Paul raises his hand and wants to punch somebody, it's a sign that it's probably pretty good <laughs> that that guy should get punched, you know. And then Thinking about all these things, I begin to think about the issue of fatherhood from the position of refusing to take responsibility. So you've got being a predator, but then you also have refusing to take responsibility. You have the sins of failing to support your family. Think of those men that sit in their house and their wife works, and they watch television and play video games. All of us know men like this, right? 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 I've counseled them. All right. 
And then you think of those men who have rampant rebellion on the part of their children and their wives in their home, and they never confront it. All of us know men like this, right? And you think, okay, what kind of consequences does that have in the life of their children and their wife? Are the consequences of that betrayal of fatherhood serious? Do the children of men who don't discipline those sons ever die? Is anybody alive here? They do die. And I think, you know, writing a book on fatherhood is going to be very difficult. Because what we have today is far beyond a failure to communicate. That's what the world wants to say is the problem between parents and their children. What we have here is a failure to communicate. What we have today is an entire breakdown of fatherhood and sonship. Because once I begin to think about the many, many failures and sins and betrayals of fathers, then I begin to think about the many, many sins and betrayals of sons. And look, you can't deal with the failures of fathers without looking at the rebellion of their sons, can you? Can you? Is it really fair to talk about the failures of fathers without also talking about the failures of sons? How many sons today submit to their fathers? How many wives submit to their husbands? (laughs) I've told you before that we had this meeting in the elders board where we were sitting around talking about the problems in a home in the church where the wife didn't submit to the husband. And then Jay Lee looks at all of us and says, now come on, men, how many of us have wives that submit to us? And the whole elders board lost it laughing. You know, we all looked at each other, and and we weren't laughing at the sin of our wives. We were laughing that we ourselves did not require submission from our wives, you know? We all looked at each other, and we said, well, you know, I don't, you know, you don't, he doesn't, you know? In other words, rebellion is the normal condition of marriages today as fatherhood's betrayal is the normal condition of the home today. Are you with me? In other words, the sins of both sides of the authority-submission relationship are matching pairs. You know how if you ever talk to a young woman, as I recently had the opportunity to do, about um, the nature of femininity and, and hold out to her the strength of submission, all right, And then you listen to the woman, she'll describe submission as being mindless automaton, sort of stupid, kind of pathetically weak, kind of, you know, squashing of your personality and gifts, right? 
And then she'll describe authority as being authoritarian, dictatorial, oppressive, stupid, and wrong. Are are you all with me? You know? And so what I said to her is, have you ever listened to the authority describe how he would describe submission? In other words, you think that women are justified for refusing to submit to their husbands because their husbands are a bunch of stupid idiots who never make the right decision, always are selfish in the decisions they make, always are oppressive in the way they make decisions, you know, and stupid again, (laughs) you know. But have you ever listened to the man describe what it's like trying to be an authority over you? Well, no, that thought hadn't quite occurred to her, (laughs) you know. She hadn't quite put herself in his shoes. So then I described to her what it's like to try to lead, And so if we're going to fault all the fathers for their failures, let's begin to think about the failures of the sons. Let's begin to think about sons who defy their fathers. If their father ever does try to lead, what does the son do? He perfectly tunes his mother to go into the bedroom and tell the father how wrong he is. Have any of you ever? Don't raise your hand. But... Have any of you ever had your son use your wife against you? (sighs) Have any of you ever used your mother against your father? (laughs) (laughs) There's not a man here who hasn't, let alone a woman. And so the more I tried to write, the more hopeless I felt it was. Because I'm just supposed to give you some helpful thoughts for the week about fatherhood. <laughs> you know? And what I see is Jerry Sandusky, and that's disgusting and wicked. And then I see Joe Paw, and that's equally disgusting and more, maybe more wicked. And then I see the council for this university, and that's disgusting. And then I see the Supreme Court, and that's still disgusting. And then I look at children, sons, and their submission to their fathers, and that's disgusting. And then I look at wives' submission to their husbands, and that's disgusting. And I'm supposed to write a book on fatherhood? How can I even begin to write when this is the condition that we're in? And then I think of Scripture, and Scripture's filled with stories just like Joe Paw and Sandusky. Just like it. And I think, so then I go to church, and it's a perfect evangelical church. There's Bible carts, and it's the right Bible, you know, it isn't twisted to suit our sensitivities. And a wonderful gospel, good coffee, good donuts, you know, nice eye candy greeting you every step of the way until you get inside. And the sermon is a wonderful gospel sermon. Only one thing is missing. The holiness and judgment of God. And we're in the middle of Jerry Sandusky. We're in the middle of Jerry Sandusky. So... It becomes apparent to me that the only way to write a book on fatherhood is to start with Adam and Eve 
and to write about the fall. About the first sin in the Garden of Eden. About the rebellion of God's son, Adam. And you say, well, he's not God. That's Jesus is God's son. Nope, nope. You go to the book of Matthew. In the genealogy, it ends by saying, Adam, the son of God. So Adam was God's son, and Adam did what? He rebelled against his father. And so I think, I've got to write about the fall. And then I think, how on earth am I going to get anybody to read a book on the fall when they've never heard a word about it in the pulpit? When, if they were ever preached to about the fall, what would happen? If they heard a sermon on the fall, what would they do? They'd get up and walk out of the church. Why would they get up and walk out? Well, this is not what we're supposed to hear Sunday morning. You're supposed to avoid all those parts of the Bible. You know, you don't want to preach on the fall. Give us something encouraging for the week. Don't talk about rebellion of sons. Don't talk about betrayal of fathers. Don't give us the stories of Cain and Abel. Don't give us the story of Noah. Don't give us the story of Lot's wife and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't give us the story of Eli and Samuel and David and Absalom. Do I need to keep going? Give us helpful thoughts for the week. And so I write, and I write three chapters on the fall, and I'm so excited for my wife, who is my better half. And that's not patronizing. It's a simple statement of fact, which Beth Alberson will attest to. And so I'm so excited for my wife to read it, right? And I have to work at it to get her to read it, right? And then finally, after a couple days, she, she, she digs in, and I call her, and I'm excited to hear what she thinks about it. And she says to me, it's depressing. And when she says to me that it's depressing, I'm what? We're a matched pair. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so I, well, why are you depressed? Well, what do you mean, why am I depressed? Do you remember what those chapters are? And so about this point, my brain starts working like like a computer. And I start... You know, like my wheels are stuck in snow. I'm not getting anywhere. Because what I'm trying to think is, how do I write about fatherhood without writing about the fall? But how do I write about the fall without depressing people? Because nobody's ever heard anything about the fall. Nobody has any idea about the fall and original sin and hell and God's judgment, God's holiness. Everybody thinks that our condition is just a little skewed, and if we just like make better decisions, then everything will be all right. But 
it will never be all right. Jerry Sandusky is me. And until you recognize that, you have not begun to be a Christian. Our problem is not that we sin. Our problem is that we are sinners. I always tell young fathers, as soon as you have a child, you realize that you could kill your child and you could sexually molest your child. And if you don't recognize that, you will never be a good father. And women hear that and women say, we're depressed. And I say, what do you want? Do you want the truth? Huh? Or you want me to lie to you? If you want me to lie to you, get an evangelical woman to preach to you. And it'll be all nice, nice, nice. Okay? Brothers and sisters, listen to me. There's absolutely no way for us to become good fathers, good sons, good mothers, and good daughters, good wives, and good husbands until we look in the face of the fall and of its fruit. It is impossible. It is impossible to know how precious the blood of Jesus is until you see the principle of evil that is in you because of your first father, Adam's sin. You, not your husband, you, You, not Jerry Sandusky. You. Don't you look down on Jerry Sandusky. No, no, no. You're a fool if you look down on him. You may hate him. You may hate the action. But don't you ever feel superior to anybody because scripture is filled with that You know what I'm going to say, Stephen. That righteous man, Lot. You remember it saying that in Hebrews? That righteous man, Lot. Any of you here wanted to say Lot was righteous before you read it in Scripture? What did Lot do? He had homosexual perverts coming to rape, to sodomize his guests in his home, and to appease them and buy them off, he did what? He tried to give his daughter to them. Brothers and sisters, Listen to Genesis chapter 3. This is the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, very simply, brothers and sisters, Satan comes to the woman, not to the man, because the woman's weaker and she is able to be deceived. That's what scripture says. The woman was deceived, not the man. So he comes up at Adam from underneath Eve, and he comes up at God to destroy God's creation by coming through Adam. Do you understand? Satan is out to destroy the world that God has made perfect. And he lies. He asks a question, great POMO strategy. Has God, has God... You know, that's the nature of postmodernism. It's always asking questions when really what it's saying is, has God? You know, postmodernism is always passive aggressive. It's always acting as if it's in conversation. What it's really doing is shouting through a bullhorn that's crammed down your mouth. (laughs) You know, has God? And then he twists what God said. He said that you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? No, just one, right? And then he says what? You what? Do you see it there? The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you surely will not die. So here's what happens. The serpent directly contradicts God. Where? At the very point of judgment. The serpent says there will not be an accounting and there will not be punishment, there will not be a judgment. Do you all see this? Huh? Everybody see it. The serpent says, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Okay? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he doesn't just contradict that there will be a judgment, but he also says... The motivation of God in threatening you with dying, which won't happen, but his motivation is to keep you from coming up to his level, to keep you from usurping his solo glorious position, all right? God doesn't want you threatening him. He doesn't want you rising up to his level. God is just a little bit insecure, Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. People will say that Adam was there with Eve at the same place when Satan enticed her, but the word with there can indicate solidarity and action rather than geographical location proximity. So we don't know. And it's likely that Adam was not there. All right. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And brothers and sisters, at that minute, the fall happened, and at that minute, Jerry Sandusky had happened, and at that minute, Joe Paw happened, and at that second, your wife's rebellion and your son's disrespect 
was born. Your son doesn't sin because he makes bad choices. He doesn't sin because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. And he's a sinner because of Adam's sin. The fall. In Adam's fall, come on. We sinned all back in colonial times, back in the 1700s. There was a book that all children were taught how to read from. It was called the Primer. All right. And every letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, was taught with a little ditty, a two-line poem. Okay. And the first letter of the English is A. And the first poem was, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's probably literacy that you didn't teach, right? (laughs) You know? Okay? And so, here we have our condition. It says, as soon as Adam sinned, notice, not Eve. When Eve sinned, the fall didn't happen. You all notice that. You know, in the New Testament, makes it very clear. It wasn't Eve's sin. If Eve had sinned and Adam had rebuked her and not sinned, the fall would never have happened. And nobody ever talks about that because it's such a complete destruction of feminism. (laughs) You know, nobody wants to talk about the fact that in Adam we fell. Not in Adam and Eve, not in Eve, in Adam. Eve sinned first, nope, nope, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Adam, that one man. That's how scripture speaks of it. In Corinthians and, and, and Romans. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God. So now they're sinful. And now, now, the one who is high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. And the angels cry, holy. And he comes into the garden. And now they have these pathetic little weeds trying to cover their loins. And they're hiding from them. And the Holy One comes in. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man. Notice, he didn't call to the woman. It's man, singular, very clear. He's speaking to Adam alone. And he said to the man, he didn't say to the woman, why did you do that? He called to the man and he said to him, where are you? (laughs) And he, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, the fall's already happened, and so what's the response? (laughs) The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. (laughs) What a man. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's true. The man blames it on the woman. The woman blames it 
on the animal who does not bear the image of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. You know what the ancient warriors and kings and and conquerors used to do? When they conquered a people group, you know what they would make them do? They would make them come to the town or to the capital or come to them. And they would make them crawl on the dust in front of them. You realize to this day, snakes give constant testimony to the truthfulness of the word of God. You realize snakes tell you that if you do not come to Christ with repentance and faith, that you will burn in hell eternally. They're constantly giving testimony that God is not mocked. That whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Every snake you've ever seen down in the dust there is showing you that God is true, though all men are liars. And so he says, you're going to be down there. You used to be majestic. Now you're going to be utterly humiliated. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so if you look at snakes today and you look at women, women don't like snakes. And snakes don't like man. There is a constant hostility between snakes and man, and particularly woman. After this service this morning, a young woman came up to me and she said to me a couple of things. And the second thing she said was, I have snakes as pets. Why was she telling me that? So we ended up talking for a long time, and finally, when I thought she'd listen to this particular point, I said to her, why did you tell me you had snakes as pets? Because you realize that the reason you have snakes as pets is that you want to make it very clear to everyone that you have a strength that is superior to everybody else's strength. It is very significant that you have pets as snakes, Because what you're trying to show everyone is that you have risen above the weakness that characterizes other women. But you having snakes would have absolutely no meaning unless God's curse were true. Because you having snakes... And the power of you having snakes depends upon the fact that God has said that there will be an enmity between woman and snake. And so it would be meaningless for you to tell me you had snakes unless I had just said publicly that there will always be enmity. And it would have been meaningless for you to come up to me and tell me you had pets as snakes unless you were telling me that you are able to be above the curse of the Garden of Eden. It depends upon God's curse for your having snakes to have any cachet. (laughs) Because the power of you having snakes depends upon what? And she said, upon the yuckiness of snakes. 
I said precisely. Right, 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 right. You see, people, when we try to act as if we're not the product of the fall, we only make things worse. There is absolutely no way for us to get back to Eden without going through the fall of Adam. And once you go through that fall, committed to honesty, committed to God's word being true, though all men are liars, committed to the humility of looking at it and saying, that is me, not that's my dad, that's my mother, that's my brother, it's me, O Lord. Until we get to the point that we go back to the fall, and even if it is depressing, we realize the fall is where things must begin for us. That until we open ourselves to the truths of the fall, look in our hearts and see, I am Noah, I am Cain, I am Adam, I am Eve, I am Eli and Samuel and David and Solomon. I am Gomer. And then we come to the cross. And hallelujah, the cross is beautiful. It's beautiful because whom else can we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for you. And if you think there's hope for you, this is the wrong church. I have a church down in Estero, Florida for you. We're in the middle of Jerry Sandusky. You'll never hear anything about sin and judgment. There's a church for you. But if you go back to the fall and you see in Adam's fall, we, not you, we sinned all. And then what? Then you're free not to judge your father. Not to judge your brother and your sister and your mother, but to see in Adam's fall, we sinned all, and there's an enmity between us and Satan. And who crushed Satan's head? I love this this statement of Scripture. Listen to this. Oh, man, I've got to find this. Here it is, Romans 16.20. David, you want to quote it? Go ahead. Yes! Come on, say it loudly. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You know, listen, people, trust me. I don't care how good choices you make. You are Adam's son. You are Eve's daughter. It's not good choices. 
the only thing that will take your sinful heart, my sinful heart, and change it will be the God of peace who will crush Satan in your heart and mine. And it's a lifelong process that only starts when we go to the fall and say, in Adam's fall, I sinned all. And then we go to the cross and say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we read that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And then one day we get to heaven. And in heaven, there are only good fathers and submissive sons. Okay? This is not a church of people who have made good choices. <laughs> Everybody can laugh with me? Right? I mean, it's pretty funny, right? Are we a church of men and women who have made good choices? No. We are the church that lives like a refugee. We are refugees. from our sin and the sins of others. But we have faith in Jesus Christ crushing the head of Satan. And that one day soon, remember, a Christian desires three things with respect to sin. Justification that it not condemn. Sanctification that it not reign. And glorification which... By God's grace, soon Glenn will be there. That it will not be. A Christian desires three things about sin. Justification, the blood of Christ that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit that it doesn't reign over us. All right, And glorification, that it doesn't exist. It's gone. It's cast into the bottomless pit with the serpent, with the devil. And that's where we will finally have all the good choices that the world tells us about. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the history of the fall so that we can begin to understand ourselves. Father, show mercy on us sinners here. Show mercy on Jerry and Joe Pa. Show mercy on rebellious wives and weak sons. Father, give us faith that we will come to the cross and be washed by Jesus, your son, your obedient son's blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.